Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Portland, Maine. Founded in 1786, Portland is the largest city in the state of Maine and sits on the Atlantic coast with multiple islands just to its east. Portland's waterfront district, known as Old Port, is one of the few intact East Coast historic waterfronts and today looks substantially the same as it did over a hundred years ago with all of its charm and warmth of the old architecture. But in 2001, Old Port lost its charm for the family of one young woman who vanished from its streets. Before we start our podcast, I want to cite our two primary source documents. In addition to court records, our podcast is based primarily on the book Finding Amy by then Portland Deputy Police Chief Joseph Laughlin and Kate Clark Flora. At the time, Joseph Laughlin was then a lieutenant with the Portland Police Department and oversaw the investigation into Amy's disappearance. As you can tell by the title, this podcast will be divided into two parts. We didn't plan to do a two-part episode so early after the launch of our podcast, but we didn't feel we could properly share Amy St. Laurent's story without including important details about the investigation and all of the people involved. We would also like to thank Portland, Maine Police Officer Banky with the Community Policing Division, who graciously agreed to spend some time talking with us about this case. On Saturday night, October 20th, 2001, 25-year-old Amy St. Laurent from South Berwick, Maine, had been in Boston sightseeing with an acquaintance named Eric Rubright, who she met a few weeks earlier on a trip to Florida. Upon returning to Maine, rather than going back to her house, they went to the Old Port area of Portland to eat, dance, play pool, and have a few drinks. Then, Amy disappeared without a trace. By Sunday... Amy's parents, Diane Jenkins and Dennis St. Laurent, had gone to the South Berwick Police Department to report Amy missing. And on Monday, October 22nd, Amy's parents, her sister, her ex-boyfriend, and some friends spent all day putting up missing posters around the city of Portland with Amy's picture on it, asking them to call if they had seen her. On Monday evening, October 22nd, Portland homicide detective Danny Young became involved when a friend and colleague from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department, James Estabrook, called him to talk about Amy St. Laurent going missing after visiting the Old Port area. Deputy Estabrook's girlfriend was a friend of Amy's mom, Diane Jenkins. There's a quote in the book Finding Amy that describes Detective Young in a way that will resonate with all of our listeners and explain why Deputy Estabrook called him. Quote, Supervisors say Young is the detective they'd want on the case if something happened to one of their family members, end quote. Definitely one of the highest accolades you could give a detective. Absolutely. It's not unusual for a 25-year-old woman to not come home after a Saturday night out on the town, 
But with just a couple of well-placed phone calls, Detective Young quickly assessed that for Amy, this was highly unusual. Amy was very close to her family, and she would never have gone this amount of time without speaking with her mother, her father, or her sister. Also, she had a cat at home, and she would have never left her cat unattended and unfed. By the time Detective Young received the call from Deputy Estabrook, Amy had not been home since Saturday, so that's two days with no communication from her, which was highly, highly unusual. And she didn't show up for work on Monday. Although Amy had been an honor student in high school, she chose not to attend college and instead got a job at an aircraft assembly plant called Pratt & Whitney. She'd been there for a few years by this time and had worked her way up the company from a graveyard shift assembly line worker to a responsible administrative position. Most importantly, Amy had a presentation that she was supposed to deliver on Tuesday, something she would have never voluntarily skipped. After Detective Young had assessed that this behavior was very unlikely for Amy, he called Sergeant Tommy Joyce, who was his boss at the Criminal Investigations Division with the Portland Police. After telling him what he'd learned, Sergeant Joyce agreed with Detective Young's assessment. Sergeant Joyce called his superior, Lieutenant Joseph Laughlin, for permission to work overtime on their night off to investigate Amy's disappearance. Young and Joyce knew Amy had called her mom around 10 p.m. on Saturday night to tell her what she was doing. She let her mom know that she was with Eric Rubright and they were in his rental car. Detectives called the rental car company who used their GPS system to locate the vehicle. At 10.30 Monday night, Eric Rubright walked up to the rental car and found Portland police officers waiting on him. He admitted to seeing a flyer of Amy and had just called the South Berwick police. He had been drinking, but agreed to talk to the Portland police rather than driving 40 miles to South Berwick. He went down to the Portland police station and consented to be interviewed. Eric Rubright told detectives on Saturday he and Amy had been in the Boston area visiting museums, sightseeing, and having dinner. They then headed back to Portland and specifically to the Old Port area to go to some bars. Eric told the detectives that Amy called her mom, who lived in Portland, and invited them to join her, but she declined. Eric told detectives that the first bar they hit was called Four Play Sports Bar in order to play pool. Eric didn't play pool, so he drank beer while Amy played pool with a couple of guys she met that night. After that, Rubright and Amy went to get some pizza, then went to a dance club called Pavilion. Here at Pavilion, they ran into the same two guys that she had played pool with earlier that evening. Rubright apparently also didn't dance. So when Amy went off to find someone to dance with, like at foreplay, he hung out drinking beer by himself. He told detectives that after last call, which in Maine is at 1 a.m., he went to the bathroom. He said there was a long line. For the men's bathroom? Yes. Which... All right. I know. Exactly. So he tells the detectives that there's a long line, and when he comes out of the bathroom, Amy and the two guys that she had been dancing with weren't around. He told detectives that he stayed outside until 1.20 when he was asked to leave the area. Eric told detectives that he got into his car, which had Amy's jacket, purse, backpack, and cell phone. She'd only taken her driver's license with her and some money, and he figured she'd find her own way home, so he got gas and took the toll road to her home in South Berwick. He said Amy wasn't home when he got there. 
And even though Amy had given him a key, Rubright told the police that he felt weird staying at her house, so he slept in his rental car. In the morning, he did use her key to let himself in to shower. He then left a note on her door asking what happened to her and thanking her for the visit. He left her purse and backpack in the house. He then put her coat on the hood of her car and the key on one of the tires and left. While interviewing Rubright, Detective Young received a call from Amy's stepfather, Don Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins said he'd received a call from a man who said that he had seen Amy's missing poster and that he and his friends had been with Amy in the early morning hours of Sunday, October 21st. Mr. Jenkins told him to call Portland police and speak to Detective Young. The caller was Jeffrey Gorman, who went by Russ, and his friends were Kush Sharma and Jason Cook. Sharma and Cook were roommates who lived in an apartment on Brighton Avenue in Portland. Russ Gorman had been couch surfing at their apartment. It was actually Jason Cook who recognized Amy from the flyer and knew that his friend Russ had been with her early Sunday morning. Naturally, detectives separated the three men and interviewed them independently. Because Detective Young was still interviewing Rubright, Sergeant Joyce interviewed Russ Gorman and two other officers interviewed his friends. Gorman told Sergeant Joyce that he'd met Amy at the sports bar foreplay and they'd all parted. Amy with her friend and he with his friends. But they happened to meet up again at the Pavilion Dance Club and Amy told Gorman that she couldn't find the friend she'd been with. Gorman was crashing at his friend's apartment, so he invited her to go with him and Sharma back to the apartment where they were having an after-hours birthday party for Cook. And after looking for her friend again without any luck, she decided to go with them. Gorman said they got to the apartment about 1.15 a.m., but after a while, when no party materialized, Amy asked to be taken back to the pavilion. Amy said if she didn't find her friend that she would just go to her mom's house in South Portland. Gorman said they left the house about 1.45 a.m., confirmed by Jason Cook, who said he'd come home at that time to see them leaving. Sharma had told police a similar story about Gorman and Amy leaving the apartment together about 1.45 a.m., for him to take her back to the Pavilion Dance Club. Gorman said he dropped Amy off in front of the dance club at 2 a.m., and it appeared that she was walking toward the entrance. Gorman told officers that he noticed other people standing around outside, but didn't see her speak with anyone before he drove off. That's a nice guy, right? You make sure somebody's safe? I know, seriously. I'll drop you at 2 in the morning, and she left, and he went on his way. And he dipped. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You just love that word. I really do. Gorman estimated that his trip took fewer than 10 minutes and that he stayed in the apartment for the rest of the night. So here we are on Monday. She goes missing on Saturday and detectives had verified information of her whereabouts until early Sunday morning from four sources. But they're also at a point with no Amy, no obvious signs of a crime So now detectives have to keep their options open and continue searching for further suspects like ex-boyfriends. By Tuesday morning, Amy had been missing for more than 48 hours. Sergeant Joyce allowed Detective Young to be the primary detective on the case and was able to convince their lieutenant, Joseph Laughlin, that this was an important case and needed to be worked on now. Later that same Tuesday morning, Portland Police Chief Michael Chitwood held a press conference with Amy's family members, pleading for help from the public. As is common in situations like this, when detectives get the lay of the land, they circle back around and re-interview people. 
So Eric Rubright was supposed to fly home. Now remember, he's from Florida. He was supposed to fly home on Tuesday. He agrees to delay his flight home until Wednesday so the detectives could interview him again and so that he could take a polygraph. So this is Tuesday. Let me back you up for a minute to Friday night. So Friday night, the night before Amy goes missing, Amy's neighbor and co-worker, Ruth McElhaney, said she had seen Eric peeling out of Amy's driveway on Friday night after she heard them fighting. Immediately following his departure, Amy told Ruth that Eric was mad because the two of them were not going to have a sexual relationship. So Monday, after she'd been missing a couple days, Ruth sees Amy's nice coat on the ground next to her car. She's worried. She calls the South Berwick police, reports the incident that she had observed on Friday night, and asks them to come and make sure Amy was okay. The South Berwick police come to Amy's apartment on Monday, and they find a note on the door that says, quote, where the F did you go? Unquote. So is this a note that Rewrite told police he left asking where she was and thanking her for the lovely visit? Clearly, he is not a writer for Hallmark. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I think that's the note. (laughs) But, you know, he embellishes enough for police. He maybe could be. Yeah, exactly. So Rewrite comes back on Tuesday for a second interview. Detectives by this time know that he has a record. There were some minor drug offenses But he also had a restraining order against him from a relationship with a former girlfriend, a girlfriend whose name was also Amy. At this point, the detectives are thinking that a man who flew over a thousand miles to have sex probably would not have handled it well when he was turned down. Yeah, no. Exactly. Especially, I mean, somebody who had a domestic violence restraining order in his history, it seems to be within his character. That's what they're thinking. Absolutely. So during the polygraph, at various points during the questioning, the results showed that Eric Rubright was being deceptive. Detective Young, who had a good rapport with Eric, took over the interview. Although the polygraph did not help Eric, Detective Young found him to be cooperative and forthcoming. Yet, At the end of the interview, Eric refused to provide a hair sample and a DNA sample. He's running hot and cold with the detectives. Why would you do all of that and then say, no, I'm good? Yeah, they're thinking like he he actually took a polygraph. He's being cooperative. Why is he not producing this? Right. But anyway, he doesn't. So they move along. The police then turn their attention to Russ Gorman. The book Finding Amy describes Gorman as, quote, 21 years old, a 5 foot 9-ish, 160 pound pretty boy with artificially streaked blonde hair, fashionably spiked with gel, end quote. <laughs> did, did he not know Wham had broken up? <laughs> my guess is no. Or oh my maybe God. he was hoping for the revival. Seriously. He also had multiple tattoos and a pierced ear. Gorman had been raised in Troy, Alabama and Delray Beach, Florida, and had moved to Maine about 18 months prior when his mother, Tammy Westbrook, had moved to Scarborough, Maine with her boyfriend. Scarborough is about eight miles south of Portland. He was also a regular at bars in the Old Port section of town, so much so that he was known by bartenders and bouncers. Don't judge. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just judging you. (laughs) I'm not judging him. 
We've got what? Barwinkles and El Paso Cantina. El Paso Cantina. Acapulco Inn. <laughs> JoJo's. Exactly. On the same Tuesday that Detective Young had interviewed Rubright, he also interviewed Gorman for a second time. Gorman stuck to his same story for the most part, but he added a few details in his second interview that hadn't been in his first. Gorman had told Detective Young that Amy didn't seem drunk that night. In order to document his timeline, he told Detective Young that when he arrived back at the apartment after dropping Amy off, Jason Cook was on the computer sending an email to his aunt in Florida, something Jason Cook verbally confirmed. Gorman also said that upon returning from dropping Amy off, he had made a phone call, but here it is, I don't know, three days later? He couldn't remember who he had called. So he gave them three different people who he thought it could have been. Yet, when Detective Young asked for the route he'd taken when he dropped Amy off, he wouldn't tell him. He absolutely refused. And then he also declined a polygraph and wouldn't let police take a look at his car. Prior to this interview, detectives found that he was on probation in Maine for theft, which wasn't something he told police, but is required when being questioned by police. The police also contacted police departments in Troy and Delray Beach to see if he had criminal records in either location. Portland Police Detective Donald Cryer assessed Russ Gorman this way, quote, in my 20 years as a cop, I'd never seen a guy so cocky and arrogant in a police station. He made eye contact and was actually sizing us up, end quote. I think that probably describes Gorman pretty well, huh? Exactly. And I read somewhere that it could be a little disconcerting to police when somebody comes into the station and is totally comfortable. Like Gorman wasn't nervous. He wasn't intimidated that he was in a police station. It's, it's odd. It is odd. I mean, honestly, even if you're innocent of something or you have to go down and see somebody, you see all those policemen there, everybody feels guilty about something. Right. Exactly. And everybody's going to be nervous. And police had another man they wanted to look at, her ex-boyfriend, Richard Sparrow. They knew that he was unhappy about the breakup. I think they had dated Kathy, what, like five years yeah, or something? Yeah, and they'd only broken up about three months prior to this. Yeah, so they knew that he was a jealous guy and unhappy when she started dating other men. However, he had an ironclad alibi because he was out of state with friends at the time. So they were able to rule him out as a suspect very early on. Okay, so now the detectives have a lot of information, and it's time for them to do the footwork. They have to track down leads and corroborate or refute the information that they've been given by the witnesses. By Wednesday morning, by the way, this is so fast in time. You know, she's missing Saturday night in the early hours of Sunday morning. And by Wednesday, they have so much information already. And they've talked to so many people. Yes. And, and they're tracking down the information or trying to figure out what's true and what's not true. So most of Rubright's story by Wednesday had checked out. They were suspicious of him because, well, for obvious reasons, in addition to the fact that he had given an overly detailed story when he was first interviewed. And we've talked about this in prior podcasts, that police become suspicious because liars typically give you too much information in an attempt to prove that they're not lying. Correct. One of the things he did during his first interview on Monday after he had been drinking is he pulled a bunch of receipts out of his pockets and two of those receipts were for a toll booth and gas. And so what the detectives did is they took the receipts and they looked at the timestamp on them and they went and got video from the gas station. And sure enough, there he is on video by himself 
And they're thinking like, wait a second, Amy could have been in the trunk. We don't know. Right. You know, they see him at this gas station at the time on the receipt. So then they go to the toll booth and he had told them, uh, Rubret had told the detectives how when he got to this toll booth on the night Amy went missing, he only had 15 cents in his pocket. And he, so he didn't have enough money to pay the tolls and he had to beg the woman at the toll booth to please let him through that this was the only route he knew on how to get back to Amy's apartment. And she let him through. Exactly. So the detectives actually find the toll booth operator who remembers the guy who only had 15 cents in his pocket. And she specifically remembers the time because at 2 a.m. every night she has a snack and she was having a snack when this guy was telling her the sob story. (laughs) He got lucky. Oh, he got so lucky. And so, you know, sort of against all odds and their instincts, Eric Rubright's story checked out. But he had still refused to give hair and DNA samples, right? Right. That was on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, before he flew out of Maine, he decided, what the heck, I'm doing it. And he gave them blood and hair samples. And then Wednesday night, he left Maine. And then there was one. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S F-O-O-D dot com slash Killer D. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With Rubright and Sparrow ruled out, that only left Russ Gorman, the last person to see Amy St. Laurent on Saturday night. On Wednesday, October 24th, detectives re-interviewed Jason Cook and Kush Sharma. Remember, these are the friends whose couch Gorman was crashing on. And they essentially confirmed his version and timeline of events. But two other people also lived at the apartment, meaning there was a total of four roommates there. And so on that Wednesday, police also talked to the other two, David Grazier and his fiancée, Don Shimrich. 
Grazier said he'd gotten home from work on Sunday morning between 12.15 and 12.30 a.m., and no one was home. When he left between 1 and 1.30 to go pick up his fiancée, Dawn, from work, he said at that time, Sharma, Gorman, and a woman they introduced him to as Amy entered the apartment. Grazier was actually able to identify a picture of Amy St. Laurent as the woman he had been introduced to. After Grazier left to pick up Dawn, they went to breakfast at a local restaurant called The Station, arriving home between 3 and 3.15 a.m. These people stay up really late. <laughs> but you know, it's honestly, I was thinking that too, and, and I'm a little older than I used to be. <laughs> but when I used to work in a restaurant, it's a late crowd. I had a roommate who called me Sunshine because he knew I was home when the paper was in. And if the paper wasn't in yet, I wasn't home yet. It's crazy. So I, I, I get it. But yeah, now I'm just too old. To do that. <laughs> we like sleep. Yes, we do. <laughs> now, remember, it's about 3.15 in the morning. And Grazier said he went into all the rooms on the main floor of the apartment and didn't see Gorman. But he did say he could have been smoking on the porch because smoking wasn't allowed in their apartment. Grazier went to bed and woke up about 4.30 or 5 o'clock, went downstairs to use the bathroom, and Gorman was there. He was washing up, fully dressed, and didn't look like he'd been to sleep at all yet. Shimrich also confirmed that when she got home about 3 a.m., she talked to Cook and Sharma for about 20 minutes, but she hadn't seen Gorman in the apartment either. Which is interesting. I mean, he could have been outside smoking a cigarette, but I know from, like, smoking clothes in the 90s, it doesn't take 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That same day, Wednesday, that detectives talked to Grazier and Shimrich, a man named Matt Despins went to the Portland police station with what he thought was important information. He said he was a good friend of the roommates and he had seen Gorman, Sharma and Amy at a bar called the Iguana at 1 a.m. He was a bouncer there and they came in to use the bathroom. Closing time was 1 a.m. And so he was irritated because Gorman had brought these people in to use the bathroom when really they shouldn't have been in the bar at all. And the unusual thing for me was the closing time was actually 1 a.m. And it still is. There are fewer than a handful of states who have a 1 a.m. closing time. Despins also told detectives that Gorman had cleaned his car, something he never did, even though his job was detailing cars. Despins said he'd seen Gorman's car a week prior to Amy's disappearance, and it was dirty and junky, as was typical. He said on Monday or Tuesday after Amy disappeared, it was so clean that the seats were slippery. Detectives found this interesting because they'd asked Gorman for permission to search his car on Tuesday, and he told them that he was far too busy to make time for it. Oh, yes. He had a very busy schedule, Exactly, I'm sure. Mr. Important. Mm-hmm. Despins also told detectives that Gorman was really concerned about polygraphs, so he and Gorman went to see another friend of theirs, Ryan Campbell, who happened to be a part-time police officer in Old Orchard Beach, and they used his computer to do the research on polygraphs and even printed out material. According to Despins, Ryan Campbell had recently told him that he was missing a gun and Campbell thought Gorman had taken it. I think it's important to note, you know, we're talking about how quickly the investigation is going, that it's already Wednesday. But one of the things we haven't talked about is really what her parents are going through. And one of the things I had read in the book, Finding Amy, is that Detective Young, for his busy as he was. I mean, clearly he was working day and night, going through all of the interviews and all the work he was doing. But Detective Young was also very generous with his time and energy when it came to keeping Amy's parents informed every day. That's awesome. He would make time to update them on the investigation. 
and just give them answers to questions. And when they didn't have answers, he just wanted to make sure he was there to support them and make sure they knew this case was still important to the Portland Police Department. But what's even cooler than that is that when he spoke with them, he actually had updates for them. Because you of know, how hard he and the other detectives were working. And yeah. how, how hard would it be to be a detective and to not have any answers, to not have leads or clues or interviews or whatever under your belt, and you're just telling the family, we're trying, we're trying, we're still looking, we're trying. At least this guy was able to actually give updates on what they were doing. That's a really good point. You know, I'm sure he wasn't disclosing the substance necessarily, but letting him know that they had spoken with people that day. Right. And they had four witnesses who had seen her early that morning, and they were able to, like, start tracing that path. So. Exactly. So in addition to following up on leads, in the week following Amy's disappearance, Detective Young had directed community policing officers to conduct numerous searches in and around Portland. One of those community policing officers was the officer I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Officer Karina Banky. At the time, Officer Banky had been with the Portland Police Department for a couple of years. She shared a lot in common with Amy. They were both approximately the same age, they'd gone to the same places, and where the disappearance had happened was really close to home. She said to us, quote, I was searching for Amy's body in places where no parent wants to imagine their daughter being found, end quote. We know the searchers looked in many areas, including squalid abandoned buildings, back alleys, industrial parks, and dumpsters. Little did Officer Banky know at the time, she would become an integral part of the work being done to carry on Amy's legacy. And we'll talk more about this in part two. And by the way, if we ever make our way to Portland, Maine. Which we will. Which we will. And which I know you used to live in, actually. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I, it's an amazing place. My nomadic friend. Yes. If we ever get there, we're taking her out to dinner. Oh, absolutely. Or maybe we're making her cook for us. <laughs> and we'll bring the alcohol. Oh, my God. Maybe she can set you up with a hot detective. Oh, I'm on Ooh. that. But would I have to live in Maine? Because I think I'm too much of a petunia. You, would, you wouldn't have to live in the cold. That's okay, too, cold. No, no, too no. cold. It's too cold. Too cold. Too <laughs> cold. But yes to the detective. Let's just swing back to that. <laughs> in addition to the efforts of Portland police, the Maine State Police interviewed Amy's neighbors and searched around her house, state parks, and the sides of roads. Portland detectives spent their own time at night, after work, and on the weekends, searching locations that they thought might not have been looked at yet. Amy's family and friends also joined these searches, along with Amy's co-workers from Pratt & Whitney and her mom's co-workers from the Realty office, where she worked. We just mentioned the Maine State Police. I wanted to point out that in the state of Maine, they are responsible for all homicides in the state, with the exception of two cities, Portland and Bangor. And yes, it is pronounced Bangor and not Banger. Which I totally would have called it Banger. Because <laughs> you're a headbanger. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because Amy went missing in Old Port, the Portland police were involved. However, she was from South Berwick, and we don't know if something had happened to her there. Any homicides outside of Portland would have been the jurisdiction of the Maine State Police. So just in case this is a homicide investigation, they decided to work together. By Thursday... The fifth day after Amy had disappeared, Lieutenant Laughlin told Amy's mother that she should expect that her daughter was already dead. According to the book, Lieutenant Laughlin said that he could see it in Amy's mother's eyes that she already knew what he was going to tell her. And he said that based on everything he had learned and based on his own experience, time was no longer on their side. Also on Thursday, Detective Young and Detective Dunham a computer forensics expert for the Portland Police Department, went back to the apartment where Russ Gorman had been staying 
and met with Jason Cook. In order to establish the timeline, they wanted to see the email Cook told them that he had sent to his aunt. Detective Dunham was unable to find an email to his aunt. Cook tried to explain it by saying that he had a computer program that automatically deleted emails after a certain number of days. However, he couldn't explain how other emails that predated Amy's disappearance were still on his computer. Whoops. I know. Oopsie. Jason Cook gave the Portland detectives the name and address of his aunt in Florida. They reached out and his aunt confirmed that she had not, in fact, been sent an email, nor had she received any emails from Jason in a very long time. Again, trying to establish the timeline of when Gorman returned home from dropping off Amy, detectives reached out to the three people that Gorman said he might have called that night. None of them had received a phone call from Russ Gorman that night. With Gorman's timeline crumbling before their eyes, the detectives turned their attention to the old port area. Detectives sat outside the pavilion at closing time and spoke with patrons as they left to find anyone who might have been in the street early that Sunday morning. Detectives also collected reports from police who had been on the late shift in the old port district at the time Amy was allegedly dropped off. They also spoke with a plainclothes liquor enforcement officer who reported that the streets would have been nearly clear at that time and anyone walking down the street would have been clearly visible. The plainclothes officer had not seen Gorman, Gorman's car, or Amy. One week post-disappearance, the picture that police were building of Russ Gorman told them that he was exactly the kind of guy who would try to charm a girl when it came to sex, but then react with violence if she pushed back. Gorman had a significant criminal record, and his friends revealed that Gorman lacked empathy, was prone to violence, and had a very negative attitude towards women. Russ Gorman had been born in Alabama to very young parents who got divorced when he was one and then fought over custody until he was six. Eventually, his father moved away and started a different family with a new wife, and he had very little contact with Russ. His mother had another child and kind of came and went throughout his life, and he was often left with grandparents. He wasn't very good at school, and he repeated the first and fourth grades. By the time he was in seventh grade, he was 15 years old. Wow. I know. That's so sad. Anyway, that same year, he dropped out of school, and at this time, he lived part-time in Florida with his mother and then part-time with his paternal grandmother in Troy, Alabama. Now, in both of these states, he had a significant juvenile record. They included auto theft, robbery, punching a teacher in the head, uh, making sexual calls to a 13-year-old girl, and not surprisingly, he began abusing alcohol and drugs in his early teens. In Florida, because of violent incidences with his mother and her inability to control him, Russ Gorman was taken into state mental health guardianship. He had a psychiatric evaluation which determined he was depressed and suffering from oppositional defiant disorder. Gorman moved to Maine about 18 months before Amy St. Laurent's disappearance to join his mother, Tammy Westbrook, and her boyfriend, Rick DeVoe, who had moved to Scarborough, Maine. And at the time, Tammy had a teenage daughter, and she and her boyfriend had two younger children. With only a seventh grade education, Gorman was only able to get menial jobs. In September of 2000, almost a year before Amy disappeared, Gorman was cleaning and prepping used cars for resale. 
Gorman stole from one of the customer's cars and a co-worker reported him to police. Gorman was convicted of theft and at the time of Amy's disappearance, he was still on probation for that crime. Despite his criminal record, Gorman's friends and acquaintances looked up to him because of his skills in hooking up with women. They sound like charmers too, don't they? Yeah, seriously. That's why I'm looking up to somebody. Right. At the time Amy disappeared, Gorman had bragged to his friends that he had slept with over 90 women, even though for most of that time, he had had a stream of steady girlfriends. How on God's green earth had his junk not fallen off? (laughs) Talk about a disease bag. No kidding. (laughs) Scarily, some of his friends told detectives that they believed he was using drugs and alcohol to ensure he got his way with these women. That is scary. He was reported to have been dealing ecstasy in the clubs, and detectives found out that there were also a number of girls who had no memory at all of what had happened when they were with him. Amy St. Laurent's behavior in leaving with Gorman was sufficiently uncharacteristic that detectives speculated that she may have been drugged as well. In some of what I read about this case, these girls that were talking to detectives at the time had never reported any of this. Of course not. I know. It's like, that's so sad to me. Absolutely it is, because they were also suffering with this as well. Correct. Detectives knew that Gorman had cleaned his car, but they also knew that there were forensic tests that can pick up trace evidence even after a car had been cleaned. On Saturday, one week after Amy St. Laurent disappeared, Detective Young got a search warrant authorizing the seizure of Gorman's car. Detectives kept pressure not only on Gorman, but also his friends. They continued questioning his friends to see if their stories would change and surveilled Gorman, who had completely changed his appearance. They were hoping he'd crack under the weight of his conscience and steady police scrutiny would cause him to say something. I thought it was really interesting how he had changed his appearance. So he was this sort of, you know, blonde streak, pretty boy. He shaved his head, grew a goatee, got a bunch of piercings. And more tattoos. More tattoos. So it, it was like he was cracking or something. And I think that's what the detectives were hoping for. Absolutely. I agree. Like just completely changing his persona. Maybe people he was, maybe he was afraid people would recognize him as, oh my God, that's the guy who's under, who knows? I don't know. Right. But I just, I found that very odd. In the second week following Amy's disappearance, Detective Young was introduced to Maine State Police Detective Scott Heracles. Detective Heracles would become his partner during the investigation. Detective Young briefed Detective Heracles on all of the prior week's events. From the beginning, the two detectives had a really strong bond. Two to three times a week, Detective Heracles would make the hour-long drive to Portland to meet up with Detective Young. The grief and loss of Amy's family was a heavy weight, and there was also the pressure from the media who were always looking for new information. The detectives had to be constantly alert so that they never revealed any details of their investigation or who they suspected. But Chief Chitwood of the Portland Police and Lieutenant Laughlin gave frequent press conferences in an attempt to reassure the community. So as we said previously, the detectives were trying to keep the pressure up on Gorman and his friends. They were hoping they would make a mistake and Gorman would lead them to Amy's body. In mid-November, they put together a joint surveillance operation. Their plan was to attach a tracking device to Gorman's car and then let him know that a body had been discovered, hoping that he would be spooked into leading them to the body. 
The plan was that two female plainclothes state troopers would stop at a restaurant called Pizza Time where Gorman worked. They were to order pizza, and while they waited, they were going to discuss the news that a body had been found. After all of their planning, on the day of the operation, with all of the vehicles in place to follow Gorman, he didn't show up for work. He had quit his job. Detectives then revised the plan to get word to him by having a friend call Gorman at home and tell him that a body had been found. Later that evening, as they did surveillance on Gorman's mother's house where he was staying, Matt Despins called Gorman to say he'd heard that a body had been found. Sergeant Coffin was outside keeping an eye on the place waiting for Gorman's car to leave. Everyone expected movement, but Gorman didn't budge. Finally, late into the night, they called the operation off. But the detective's actions had made Gorman's life in Portland difficult. Suspicion about his involvement had been growing ever since Amy disappeared, and now those same people who used to look up to him for his skill of getting women to sleep with him now met him with anger and questions. He was even beaten up by gang members in the old port who demanded to know what he had done with Amy. Can you imagine we're at this point where gang members are the ones meeting out justice? That's crazy. It is crazy. He decided to leave Maine. His plan was to head south with his friend Sean Littlefield. Before he left, Gorman had a conversation with a friend named Brent Plummer that Plummer recorded. Gorman told him, quote, I want everyone to know, no matter what the outcome is, I've got letters typed up at my mom's house, but I can't go back there right now, end quote. Plummer asked who the letters were for and what the letters said, and Gorman replied that they explained everything. Shortly before Thanksgiving, a little more than a month after Amy St. Laurent disappeared, Gorman and Sean Littlefield left Maine and drove to Troy, Alabama. We hope you join us next week for the conclusion of the Amy St. Laurent story. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on social media. We're at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.